Father, we thank you for Robert. We thank you for Cindy. We thank you for the day that you brought them to this fellowship. And uh, what a wonderful time that was to see them come and and sit with uh, their children and grandchildren. And then slowly over the years to become more and more a part of our fellowship. And now to bring this calling to uh, Robert's front door to his, his life. We know that this is not an easy thing for him. Uh, for any of us to stand in front of others and especially to open your word. So, Father, we ask now that you would give him a spirit of calm and of peace uh, and that he would come and exhort faithfully and that he would be very encouraged in these things uh, by your spirit. Bless us, help us to listen eagerly because this is your word and to learn and grow from it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, family. It's really an honor for me to be able to stand here and present part of God's word. About 20 years ago, I say 18 years ago, was the last time I stood in a pulpit like this. And it was not a Reformed church that I spoke. And so I knew that there was going to be some struggles in preparing for speaking tonight. And I found that today I probably found the biggest struggle of all. As I was preparing to come, uh, to get dressed and, and to come and speak tonight, the biggest struggle I had was keeping my beard out of my tie while I tied the knot. <laughs> so there are struggles, but God is faithful. I want to thank the session for asking me to do this. It's a great responsibility and I appreciate it and the opportunity to speak again. So. I want to tell you tonight, you will not hear anything new. If you do, just reject it. But what you will hear is things that you are already in, in possession of. You'll hear things that you already know. The Apostle Paul says that being reminded of what we've already been taught is crucial for the Christian. He tells the Philippian church, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Paul, used to, it was used to preaching to the choir. Out of all the places that he went and all the churches that he established, he always sent back information or tried to draw them to live the life that he had taught them to live according to Christ. So he was, he was well familiar with uh, preaching to the choir. But another thing I discovered while studying for this is that Paul never preached to a Presbyterian choir, and I never did either. So be gentle. So I trust that God will be glorified and you will be edified in what you hear tonight. So the text I'm about to read is written to believers, to everyone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please stand as I read the word. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this glory into which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our own suffering, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given. Let's pray. Father, it's our heart tonight that we hear what you speak through your word, and that we have hearts to submit to the authority of that word, and that your spirit would work in us, that we might be able to receive it and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Anyone that works through the teachings of, of Paul, especially in Romans, comes across the first word that's challenging, and that's the word therefore. So what does therefore mean? It means that we need to go back. It talks about everything that was presented up to this point in Romans. Do we need to go back to Romans chapter 1, or can we just look back to chapter 4, where he is immediately giving us information that we need to deal with? I don't know. So I'm going to quickly cover chapters 1 through 4, and I mean quickly. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul addresses the condition of all men, whether Jew or Gentile. All are under the condemnation of God and are deserving his wrath. Jews thought that they were better than Gentiles. Gentiles didn't care. They didn't know God. And the Jews thought that Paul was taking people away from the true faith, the Jewish faith. And the Gentiles just thought it was nonsense. The Greeks tried to get their knowledge of God to their great intellect, but it, it does not work. You can't be saved by your brain, by your intellect. In chapter 4, Paul changes his focus away from the condemnation of man in his natural state and toward the kind of justifying faith that pleases God that's found in Abraham, the father of all who believe. So let's consider for a moment who Abraham was. We know that he came from the Ur, and we know that he was an idol maker. But he had no inkling of who God was. But God reached down into his heart and began to speak to him. He was a man that received many promises, a few of which are these. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. To your offspring, I will give this land. Your very own son will be your heir. And in the King James, in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham looked forward. He looked forward to the coming seed that would provide righteousness and salvation for his people. And that was what was accounted to him as righteousness. Dr. James Boyce, who many of you know, many of you have heard speak, and many of you have been taught by him. Um, there's one sitting in this room that used to run around in his house wondering why all the books were stacked around on the floor and on the, everything. So Dr. Boyce was certainly a man that was available. And uh, what he said when he, was, when he asked is, what did Abraham believe? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It refers not to Abraham's faith, but to the righteousness of Christ, which God credited, accounted to him. See, the sin of Abraham was on a ledger, and God took that sin and transferred that sin from his ledger to Christ's ledger. And in return, not in exchange, but this is how it works, and in return, the righteousness which is on Christ's ledger was transferred to Abraham's. 
And so Abraham was saved by faith. Abraham was a giant in the faith. He was a great man. He was well known throughout that time and throughout the world there. He was wealthy. He was an example of Old Testament piety. And yet even Abraham was not saved by his works. He had nothing to boast about. So that being true, where do we stand? We do not measure up to the godliness and piety of Abraham. We also will not be saved by works. In chapter 5, Paul points out the blessings or benefits of having been saved, having been justified. No, no unbeliever can lay claim to any of this. He writes about peace with God, access to him by faith, and he writes about hope. Each of these speaks loudly of the assurance of our salvation and of our eternal security. Verse 1, therefore, since you have been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All Christians have been justified. We were unjust sinners and were made right in the sight of a just and holy God. Justification is fully accomplished and cannot be repeated. It cannot be repealed or rescinded. Once for all time, believers are justified by the grace of God. Christians are declared righteous by God. When speaking about justification, Martin Luther says this, justification takes place when in the just judgment of God, our sins and the eternal punishment due to them are remitted. And when, when clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is freely imputed to us and reconciled to God, we are made his beloved children and heirs of eternal life. I shake not because I'm nervous, because I have shakes. Any error in understanding, I'm sorry, Luther and many other commentators use terms with regard to justification, such as these. Justification is the hinge and pillar of Christianity. Justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. Justification is the hinge of salvation. Here in the text, there's a pivot point between the current discussion of justification and the discussion of sanctification that's to follow in the next chapters. Any error in the true understanding of justification removes all of the support for everything that follows. There would not be any reconciliation. There would not be any adoption, no sanctification, no perseverance, and certainly no glorification. If sin is not propitiated, there can be no pardon for the sinner, and he dies in his sin. And all of this is received by faith. And it's not faith that believes that there is a God. It's not faith that believes that Jesus was a good man who performed miracles of all kinds. It's not faith just believing in his existence or even what the scriptures say about him historically. It is faith that believes in Jesus Christ as revealed in scripture and in his person as the son of God and his work of redemption through the cross. It is not an obscure hope. This faith has an object to be, to be believed in, and that object is the blood of Christ that justifies us before the Father. It is not faith in itself, it's not faith in faith. Faith is the means or conduit connected to the substance, which is Christ. Faith is the gift of God. 
In this section of Romans, uh, as you study the whole chapter of, of Book of Romans, you find out that this is true, that this, this part speaks of the fruits or benefits of justification, and that's certainly true. But when you carry on to chapter 8 and you read chapter 8, you find out that there's nothing that can separ separate us from the love of God. These fruits are actually proof that our salvation and relationship to God are assured in Christ. Many people today have no idea of their position with God. That is to say, many people don't care. They have no desire for God. They do not understand that they hate God and God hates them. If confronted, they'll deny it. For whatever reason, they want to feel that they are right with something, but you can't accuse me of not being right with God. But yet the truth remains that the unregenerate are at war with God and he with them. There are countless examples of the end of hostilities among men and nations in scripture and in the history of the world, but not all declarations of peace last. There is a peace found among men and there is a peace, there is peace with God. One is flawed and temporary, the other is perfect and lasting. In, 19, in 2007, a pastor from a very large non-reformed church in Texas, pastor used, he was the first pastor I sat under after the Lord brought me to the knowledge of Christ, and I appreciate him. So this pastor, his name was Ronnie Gwines, was given an assignment by his senior pastor who had received an article about a war between two tribes in the Rift Valley in Kenya, Africa. They were fighting over water. The two tribes were first the Maasai and the other was the Kikuyu. The Maasai are nomadic uh, I'm sorry, the, the Maasai are nomadic herdsmen and the Kikuyu are farmers. They both needed water. And at certain times of the year, they had to walk long distances to get this water. And when the water dried up, these two tribes would fight, even to death. They would kill each other for this water. Pastor Gwines traveled to Kenya to meet the two tribal chiefs. He was told that if he could even get them together, they would be fighting. But he was able to meet with them individually, and he finally got them together where they could talk. Through the ministry, he was able to make an offer to dig wells in the area. The first well came up dry, and while dig drilling the second well in a different location, the bit broke off in the ground. The third well produced good water and plentiful, but there was no way to transport it from the well. So they decided to, to, to dig and lay seven miles of pipe. They did not have modern digging equipment, but they had a plentiful labor pool in the men of the tribe, and they offered to pay them $5 a day each day for a certain section of the, of the trench that they were to build. So they were doing very well in the Maasai and in the Kukuyu tribes. Soon the pipeline was complete, and each tribe had a steady supply of water. After a short time, after the completion of the pipeline, a ceremony was planned to transfer ownership of the well and the pipeline to the tribes. All of the legalities were prepared and executed. And at the ceremony, the two chiefs openly declared an end to all hostilities between the tribes. And throughout the whole process, many people, including these two chiefs, became believers. 
The war ended, the people had plenty of water, and many came to Christ. Though treaties were executed and promises of peace were made, there was no real assurance that it would last. True and lasting peace never happens without a tremendous price being paid. Look at the cost of our peace with Japan right now. How many lives were lost? Yet that loss led to the saving of so many more lives. But the highest price of all was paid by our Savior, Jesus Christ. As a consequence of his death on the cross, his righteousness is imputed to the elect. They are not, no longer at war with God, but are now reconciled to him. They are at peace with God, and God is at peace with them. Wrath has been removed by the blood of Christ, our Savior. Peace with God is not a change of mind, but a change of relationship. To us belong every spiritual blessing in Christ, and with that comes a calm and peaceful conscience. Charles Hodge, an American Presbyterian, who was born in Philadelphia, he was a systematic theologian, writes this, peace is not the result of mere gratuitous forgiveness, but of justification, of a reconciliation founded upon atonement. The enlightened conscience is never satisfied until it sees that God can be just in justifying the ungodly, that sin is, has been punished, the justice of God is satisfied, and his law is honored and vindicated. To be sure, we have consciences, each one of us, that at times accuse us, and they, they take away the peace that we have with God. And to continue to let that go on, you begin to look at God as an avenger, and your peace will be hindered. I know this personally. When we allow the, tr the truth that God has reconciled us through Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to us, our peace of mind and peace of heart is reestablished. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Access into, into the grace of justification and access to the Father is by faith alone. The Reformation term is sola fide, alone faith. Have you ever in your time of prayer been amazed to realize that as soon as you set your mind to speak to God, he's already present. He's already there waiting. You don't have to wait for him to come to his office to speak to you. You don't have to wait for him to finish doing something with someone else. How amazing. How amazing I find it is to have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, the gift of God, and that he's always, always present with us. Think with me about the ancient temple and how it was purposefully designed to keep people away from the presence of God. Gentiles could enter only the outer court. Women could not pass into the holy place and certainly not the holy of holies. Only the priests could enter the holy place which was separated from the Holy of Holies by a veil. Only one priest could enter the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, or as my Jewish neighbor calls it, Yom Kippur. I figure he's Jewish, you know. So this priest would enter into the Holy of Holies after much time of elaborate preparation and with great fear. The veil of the Holy of Holies was an immense piece of, of fabric that is, is recorded as being a hand breadth 
thick, four inches maybe. Some of the references, nine inches. Some, so I'm going with this. The high priest had to enter through the, it fit the opening in a way that no light could pass into the room, top to bottom, side to side. The high priest had to enter along the sidewall. When I'm reading scripture, a lot of times my imagination just kind of drifts off. And I'm, I'm thinking of the situation. And I imagine this priest in his priestly clothing, inching his way around this heavy veil, trying to get into the Holy of Holies. And it reminded me of the tri tribulation that it takes to enter into the, the place of God, the presence of God. But that's only my speculation, so it, it's not official. Matthew 27 addresses this fact that the, the uh, curtain was torn, where it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And this is where John 19 tells us that Jesus said, it is finished. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This curtain was very ornate. One of the most prominent designs were cherubim that were, were embroidered on the side of the holy place, the separation. And this is reminiscent of the cherubim with the flaming sword that was positioned on the east side of the garden to prevent access to God when Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden. When, that, when the veil was ripped from top to bottom, the partition between, man and, between God and man was obliterated. We now have immediacy of relationship and unlimited access to our Father that was not possible before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Its destructive was, destruction was so complete that we, by faith now, can come boldly into, under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in help of time of need. And that's where we stand. There we stand in the grace of justification, pardoned and at peace with our God. Our standing is solid, it's secure, we're perfectly accepted. This stand is unable, they cannot be changed, and it's eternal. We are kept securely there by our loving, powerful, and faithful God. What an inexpressible tragedy to live without the mercy and the grace of God. The greatest loss for the unbeliever is not something that happens at the end of his life. The greatest loss happens his whole life, her whole life, that they have never known the presence of God in a saving way. And we rejoice in the hope, in hope of the glory of God. This word hope, that we use it, the way we use it, is not the way it's presented in the Bible. When we say hope, it carries a certain amount of, of doubt. I hope I have enough money to pay my bills this month. I hope I have enough, or my grades are good enough that I might get into a certain college. And especially for this year, this season, I hope the Eagles win the championship, and they might do it. So I hope, I hope, I hope. I hope for this, I hope for that, without any guarantee, any surety that you will receive it. 
Hope is the fruit of justification. The hope we have is given to us by God and is sure because he is able to perform every promise he's ever made. It is a confident expectation grounded in God's assurance. No power in all creation can overrule or hinder any action that he has committed himself to do. He is omnipotent. It also tells us that we rejoice in this hope. The English word for rejoicing doesn't fully express, express its Greek meaning, and I definitely am not a Greek scholar. So I did what happened so many years ago. It used to be when someone wanted to define a word that was found in scripture, they would put out, pull out the old and reliable Strong's Concordance, which I did. And I found out that the Greek word for rejoice refers to living with head up high. That is to say, boasting from a particular vantage point by having the right base of operation to deal successfully with a matter. This word likely comes from a root that refers to neck, or that which holds the head up high. And so figuratively, it refers to living with God-given confidence. Our boasting is to be done with exuberance. Not in our, ourselves we don't boast, but we boast in what God has done. We have that confidence. Because the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and the work he has done, because of that, we are secure in our salvation, and we can boast with excitement. We can boast with the things that come only from above. We can boast in our justification because now our relationship with God has been changed. We can boast in our peace with God. We have no war. We can boast in our access to God, and we can boast in our sufferings, and we can boast in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is the goal and the desire of all believers. To see the Lord face to face is in our hearts and in our minds. We will see Jesus. But no created thing will ever be capable of seeing the fullness of the triune Godhead. But we see Jesus. We see the fullness of God in him. Do you have a strong desire to see Jesus in his glorified state? I know you do. Consider the transformation of Jesus. Mark 9 tells us this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led, him, led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We shall see Jesus. We will see our Lord. We will see him in his effulgent, shining splendor. We'll see him in the fullness of his majesty, in all his radiance. And as, he's, and, and as he is so many times described in the book of Revelation of his great glory, we will see him. Verses 3 and 4. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We rejoice in the hope in, in the hope of, in the glory of seeing God, and suffering is the path. Jesus laid out this path and consecrated it, and consecrated suffering by his example for believers to walk in. A believer can boast in the effect that suffering produces. Rejoice in suffering? 
glory and afflictions? We run from these things. Who stands up before everyone and says, I'm so thankful that I'm suffering so terrible, terribly and want you to know it and enjoy it with me? But we do let others know that we're suffering so that we might find someone that can give us some relief. Tribulation and suffering are not enjoyable, but they are useful in the life of one that is justified and at peace with God. The unbeliever suffers in its judgment, but the believer suffers because he is being trained and proven to be God's child. Dr. James Boyce again speaks. We need to know that for, for the Christian, suffering is the arena in which we are to prove the reality of our profession and achieve spiritual victories. Paul speaks of his suffering in 2 Corinthians and many other places, and we know that he did suffer. In 2 Corinthians, God was speaking to him, and he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast, rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we know that Paul did suffer persecutions. Five times he, was, he received 40 stripes minus one from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods by the Romans. One time he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was in danger from his own people and he was in danger from the Gentiles. He had many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure. Robert Haldane was an 18th Scottish theologian, and I drew heavily off of his work in his uh, work on Romans. And this is a comment that he makes. Patience is a habit of endurance, and Christian patience implies submission to the will of God. This proves that the afflictions of a Christian are intended as a trial of his faith. Patience gives occasion to exercise the graces of the Spirit and of submission under afflictions to the will of God. So the endurance that he speaks about here, that's spoken about here, is actually proven character. It, it produces proven character and reveals what is the true inner nature of the believer. The integrity of a believer and his relationship to God is revealed in the way that he perseveres as trial exercises his faith. Exercised, tested, and confirmed faith will reveal that God is faithful and that the profession of faith is genuine. Each time a Christian is led through trials by God, whether great or small, the Christian learns to trust God more and more. He learns how to relate to God in ways that would not be known without the trial. Each time a trial comes, the Christian can look back and see how faithful God was in the last trial and that he can look forward that anything else that may come, God will be equally faithful. We are given, we are given God-given confidence, which is the essence of hope. And it leads to the ever-deepening hope and trust in our loving Father. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us and I saw a couple of ways to understand this hope does not put us to shame. One is that hope will not be disappointed. 
And I didn't like that because the statement gives, speaks about hope and hope. And we will be disappointed if we have hope and hope. The other is the hope will not allow us to be ashamed of its object. And that's what I think is more correct in these two statements because it focuses on Jesus and who he is. There is a specific quality to this hope. It is the power to break the power of shame and eliminate it. This hope inspires an open confession of the assurance of God's grace. The love of God does not descend on us like a little spring rain, a sprinkle, but as a river that fills the whole soul of the believer. It makes us aware of God's presence and his favor. The Holy Spirit produces an inward persuasion that we are specifically loved by God. Again, Robert Haldane says, he, that is the believer, enjoys the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, as he writes, through whose divine influence the love of God is infused into his soul. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and is an identifying gift to us. He bears witness that we are God's children. The ongoing process of sanctification in the life of a believer is continuing evidence that we are children of God and of the security of our salvation. Finally, my finalists are really short, so you'll love it. The, declar the declaration of pardon from past sin is accomplished in the believer. His position before a holy God is one of lasting peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as God applies sanctification, instant fellowship and access is provided by faith. Now the believer can see everything from a new perspective. He can rejoice in all things, including suffering. The operation of the Spirit produces Christ-like character and assures the confident expectation of hope as he, the Spirit, dwells within everyone to whom he has been given and received by faith. Let's pray. To us, Lord, by grace, has been given the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we, who are drawn to you by your Spirit, depend on that. We depend on your word. We depend on your making it understandable to us through the preaching of the word, through study, through time spent with you. And I pray for each person here that each one of us would have time pulled away and separate from the dailiness of our lives, that we might spend it in closeness and peace with you. Thank you, Father, for your abundant grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Next uh, Sunday, um, Deacon Anthony Frolio will be exhorting in the evening, so I invite you to come for that. All four men who are standing for office, um, so Andre Assis for the office of deacon, Matt Castillo, uh, Robert Sparlin, and Anthony Frollo for the office of elder, all four men will in January give their testimony in a Sunday evening, 
and also their sense of call. So how they have processed these, this training they've been in, why they feel the Lord is actually calling them, them to this. If you remember in the past, this is a really special time uh, for our congregation. Those evenings, the last round of officers, those evenings were really uh, powerful because the men chose to be extremely honest about their story and their struggles, their lives, and why they were coming to be officers. I know that'll be the case again. And all four of them have very different um, stories and backgrounds, and even the process that all four of them have been through to get to this moment is, is really unique. So I want to encourage you in January to come to those uh, meetings. I also want to encourage you to ask questions. This is a great time between now and January. If you have questions for any of these men about their lives, their sense of calling, approach them. Uh, they want to be approached. Uh, they're working very hard. We meet every other week for about three hours probably uh, and work through things. And so they're putting a lot of time in and they don't mind you coming to them and asking them about that. It's fine. So please uh, feel free to do that. And we're excited to have uh, four men to present to you this year. Now we want to move a little bit in our thoughts to the Lord's Supper. And so I want to begin by uh, inviting two things to happen. Maybe at once it'll be okay. First of all, for the elders to come forward. But then second of all, as we've been doing now for many months, um, invite all of you to come forward and sit together and, and encourage you to sit with someone you don't normally sit with.